Welcome to ARA Audio Room, the official podcast of the Australian Rheumatology Association. Fostering excellence in the diagnosis and management of musculoskeletal and inflammatory conditions through training, professional development, research and advocacy. Hello and welcome. I'm Rochelle Bookbinder, a rheumatologist in Melbourne, uh, Victoria, Australia. This ARA podcast has been developed with funding from the Australian Government Department of Health through the Value in Prescribing VDMARDS grant. In today's podcast, we will be discussing the new evidence-based draft Australian Living Guidelines on the Down Titration of Biologic and Targeted Synthetic DMARDS in Rheumatoid Arthritis, Axial Spondyloarthritis and Psoriatic Arthritis. The guidelines are currently out for public consultation uh, and hopefully will be endorsed by NHMRC later in the year. Our guest for today's podcast is Professor Chris Edwards. Chris is a professor at the University of Southampton and a consultant rheumatologist at the University Hospital there. He has many research interests, but one of his main interests is how to get research evidence into real-world practice. And we've invited Chris to this podcast because he also has an interest in down titration and how we talk to patients about this. So welcome, Chris. Thanks very much, Rochelle. Very nice to be part of this podcast. So thank you for the invite. Our pleasure. So Chris, you've had an opportunity to review the new draft Australian Living Guidelines and just wondered what your initial thoughts were overall, your impressions of the recommendations and the way they were developed. It's always really nice to see different approaches to developing guidelines because it allows you to contrast those with guidelines that ULAR produces with guidelines. There's the uh, draft guidelines from the ACR at the moment as well, aren't there? But what I really like is the process that uh, the Australian guidelines have gone through. I, I like the idea that these are living guidelines. I like the fact that clinicians feed into the process for answering the questions. And of course, there are the robust standards that are imprinted in, in the process that you, you've used, like the grey system, for example, to make sure the evidence is as robust as possible. Great. Before we get your comments on the actual guidelines, do you want to comment a little bit on the differences between the UK and Australia in terms of prescribing restrictions, the ones that might be particularly pertinent to your point of view about the guidelines? Yeah, and I think we're all really influenced, aren't we, about the environment in which we work, the way we see patients, how things are funded. So in, so in the UK broadly, and there are differences between the different sorts of inflammatory arthritis, but for rheumatoid, patients have to have severe disease. That's still a bit of a bone of contention in the UK that sometimes people with fairly bad moderate disease wouldn't be allowed to use a biological or a, a targeted synthetic DMARD. People have to fail two of the standard disease-modifying drugs, CSDMARD, one of which should be methotrexate. And then having failed that, then you'll be allowed to go on to an advanced therapy, a biologic or a TSD mod. For psoriatic arthritis, it's, it's a little bit looser in that you just have to have effectively three active swollen tender joints having failed the CSD mod approach. And of course, it's slightly different than when you go on to axial spondyl arthropathies, where in a way it's the loosest because it relies very much on a BASDI score, that Bath Ankylosing Spondylitis Disease Activity Score, and being over four twice 
having proven uh, that the patient has sacroiliitis with uh, with imaging. So th- there are some restrictions, and, and they're sort of easier or hard. In a way, it's harder to get on treatment if you're if you've got rheumatoid than the other two types of inflammatory arthritis in the UK. So that's quite interesting because it might be the opposite here. Yeah. In terms of psoriatic arthritis, you have to have quite severe disease. We might move now to the first recommendation, which is the one for down titration of rheumatoid arthritis. And we've made a conditional recommendation in favour of this recommendation, which means that most people, if given the choice and understanding the evidence, might choose to go with this recommendation. And I'll read it out or summarise it. So in people with rheumatoid arthritis who have been in sustained low disease activity or remission, for at least six months, consider stepwise reduction in the dose of B or TSDMAD, continue dose reduction until cessation is achieved or the lowest effective dose is identified as long as the treatment target is maintained. And the second part of this recommendation is that we recommended against abrupt cessation of the drug without prior dose reduction because the evidence doesn't support that. So we'd now like to hear your thoughts about this in particular. Yeah, well, there are a few important points on there, which I think are also reflected in other guidelines. There's the bit about sustained and there's a bit of a discussion always about, well, how long does sustained doing well need to be? You know, is is six months right? Six months is a good pragmatic length of time, which I think feels long enough, doesn't it? For Certainly for me, uh, before making the decision. So the sustained bit, I think, is important. And there's a debate about how low. Um, and, and then there's the bit about down titration and doing it in, in a stepwise way. And I, and I think most of the evidence supports that. And, and also just, I think, our clinical experience would support that. We go down slowly to see how people are doing because we want to reduce the chance of flare. And, and personally, we had some bad experiences early on with biological therapies where if people were doing really well, we just stopped. Now, this is almost 20 years ago now. And we learned very quickly that if you just stop, uh, then people will go back to having very active disease. And of course, you know, maybe it's the same in Australia, certainly in a UK setting. By the time you get a biological therapy, you've normally got bad rheumatoid. You've had it for many years and you've failed lots of drugs. So if you just stop, people will all flare. So I think the step down is is, is an important bit as well. Could you comment perhaps a little bit about our recommendation is based on the trials. And so the trials differed in terms of low disease activity or complete remission. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, I think if, if you start to the evidence, I think you can use either. And, and if the target that most many of us aim for because you're very unlikely to accrue damage is low disease activity, then I think that as a target is reasonable. In our practice, so for several years in, in Southampton, we've had a, a local strategy which we can talk about. And it stems partly from some of the evidence, but it's something that we aim for people being in remission and we aim for a, a deeper revision, remission. And, and by that, I don't mean the Boolean type remission, but a remission that depends on having stopped the steroids and having a DAS 28 less than 2.6 uh, and someone having downtrated other medications if possible. And, and on the ultrasound, having no synovitis as determined by Doppler uh, on their ultrasound. And I guess it's because we were doing it fairly early on in the process and we were nervous that we didn't want people to escape and to do badly. So we went very cautiously. And that's a debate now, how certain you have to be that someone's in remission. So talking a bit more about your experience, if they do lose control, what generally happens then? You know, how many can gain that control back again? So the vast majority do. 
And I think the evidence supports that as well as personal experience. So it, you know, our clinical experience is that about 80, 85% of people get back quite quickly. And over time, many of them eventually go back. And I think, to be fair, you have to compare to what would happen to people who hadn't come down and a percentage of those would flare as well. So I think this, the data is never quite as bad as it initially looks when you say, well, perhaps 15% of people don't initially get back into their disease state. But that's why the, the relationship with the patient is so vitally important, isn't it? Because when you ask patients, when you do uh, patient groups and discuss what they're concerned about, their biggest concern is that they'll reduce, then they'll flare, and they won't be able to go back on treatment early. So having a process where you can get back people soon, an advice line, for example, that, that's really important for taking the patients with us. I think we've mentioned before the different half-lives of the of the different drugs and what leads us to the next question about how long you wait once you've gone down a little bit if you wanted to down titrate again how long would you wait before you could be confident they're not going to flare well for me this is a really interesting point and I, I I don't think this gets this gets raised enough and it, and it is the difference between particularly biological DMARDs and TS DMARDs isn't it so if I stop a TS DMARD then with the short half-life of several hours within a week it's really out of the system and presumably the disease if it's still there is going to come back there are strengths and weaknesses in knowing that with a biological therapy you know if you took uh, one of the anti-TNF therapies, for example, it may be a week, two weeks longer, the half-life. So it's months before you know that your reduction has had any effect. And, and of course, what that does is it slightly flatters our ability to be able to down titrate. Now, once again, there's good and bad. The good is that the patient gets a very slow taper off because there's still drug in the system. Maybe that's a good thing for the patient. But it does also mean that the studies looking at this need to be long enough to really give the disease time to come back and flare. So many of the studies are six months or they're a year, or it's rare for them to be much longer than that. That's really important when we try and understand these differences. And so what do you do now in your practice? We still titrate down over time. Now, some of it ends up being a bit pragmatic because usually we see patients on biological therapies routinely every six months. That would be the standard. So nobody should go longer than six months. So some of the decision making is geared to those six month periods of time. So we would tend to down titrate, wait for six months, down titrate, wait for six months. And actually, that seems to be a not unreasonable approach in terms of the results we get from taking down the, uh, the doses. Thank you. I guess if they're on a TDMAD and they flare much quicker, then they would be able to contact you through the helpline. Is that right? Yeah, ex exactly right. So, you know, different departments will have different ways of doing it. There's no right way, is there? But we have a, an advice line, which is an answer phone, which is manned uh, during the working week. So they'll get a call back from one of the nurses within 48 hours, you know, whenever they ring during you need that to give the patient confidence because when you sit in patient groups what is always interesting to me is that a large group of patients on biologists are really keen to reduce you know people don't like being on drugs but they do really like the beneficial effects so the flip side of that is that they're really worried about if they come off the therapy can they get back on or will they be allowed to go back to that dark place they were in uh, when their disease was uncontrollable uh, before they went on their advanced therapy and in terms of the UK and the restrictions, has there been any concern about getting them back on if they've come off? 
Uh, I think there's concern with the patients. I mean, and it will vary a little bit depending on what patch of the country that you work within. Now, where I work, we have a very good relationship with what I would call the payers, the people that are responsible for paying for the cost of the drugs within the health service. And, and those relationships with those pharmacists are absolutely vital. And so, you know, we try and be good citizens. Uh, and by being good citizens, we have some flexibility in this uh, and we can rapidly put people back on the therapies. But I, I think that's more difficult in some bits of the country, particularly when the relationship between clinicians and payers is not so good but you know that will vary once again country to country. What would be your usual practice would you get people off the methotrexate before the biologic or would you keep the methotrexate and take them off the biologic? Generally our approach has been to reduce the biological therapy before we reduce methotrexate and some of that initially was driven for other reasons because you know I'm not sure this holds completely now but when the initial evidence was coming about that methotrexate seemed to be associated with less comorbid disease such as cardiovascular disease we were really keen to get rid of the corticosteroids because that was seemed to be a negative thing to continue on but methotrexate may have had some other benefits now as we start to see some of those cardiovascular benefits with uh, the biological therapies certainly. then maybe that doesn't hold true, but we've tended to reduce down the biologic and then reduce down the methotrexate. But, you know, sometimes there's a little bit of trimming of the CSD mold, the methotrexate first down to 15. And having done that, then uh, we take away the biological beam to reduce it. And I noticed you mentioned the glucocorticoids. Can you talk a little bit about whether you would get people completely off the glucocorticoids if they're on them? before you would try and taper? Yeah, so I would normally try to get rid of corticosteroids before tapering. And I I just think the evidence, and, and once again, these things are influenced a bit where you train, I think. So I spent some time working with Graham Hughes, who has done lots of work in lupus. And one of his biggest contributions, I think, was being absolutely fastidious about reducing and taking away steroids wherever you could. Now, inflammatory arthritis is slightly different, but if you look at the data, data from the Corona registry, other big registries, there is lots of evidence that even low doses of prednisolone increase the risk of cardiovascular disease. And of course, that's without thinking about osteoporosis. So yeah, so I would always try and take away the corticosteroids. Now, like everything in clinical medicine, you know, it always depends, doesn't it? There's always a a unique circumstance, but the general rule for me would be take away all the steroids before I started to taper. Thanks, Chris. So I might turn your um, thinking towards uh, axial spondyloarthritis now, and I'll just remind you about our uh, recommendation. It was, again, a conditional recommendation in favour of titration, down titration of the biologics. Uh, In this instance, uh, our guidelines are only restricted to biological therapies because there isn't any data yet for any other type biologic DMARD or non-biologic DMARD. So in patients with axial spondyloarthritis who have been in sustained low disease activity or remission for at least six months, so that's pretty similar to the rheumatoid one, consider reduction in the dose of BDMARD. Continue at the lower dose as long as the treatment target is maintained. And once again, abrupt cessation of biologic DMARD is not recommended. So what are your thoughts on this one? I really like the wording of it because this is just so clean, isn't it? In that it has all of the concepts about telling you uh, when you should start to do it, the fact that you should do it in stepwise, and, and therefore it just makes it very clean and very clear. I, I, I suppose biologically, I always wonder whether there's a reason why we should be 
different in these things. I, I worry sometimes that for axial spondylarthropathy, some of the changes that go on within within the bone occur over a longer period of time. And I wonder how well the evidence allows us to be certain that we can reduce in the same way as with rheumatoid uh, because of that lag in the sort of things that happen rather than just the symptoms experienced. But yeah, I, I like the work. I thought this made a lot of clinical sense when I looked at this. One of the things that we found was that the trials have really just considered the disease in terms of its rheumatic manifestations. So it hasn't talked about uveitis or other manifestations. And I've certainly had cases where the biologic's been stopped because the patient has an infection and bang, they get uveitis. That's where, the, you know, these are always recommendations and guidelines, aren't they? You know, they don't always trump the exact situation you're in when you see a patient. And so often in medicine, the phrase, it depends, comes in. So uh, and maybe that's an important to make. The, these guide us, they guide us through the best clinical uh, evidence that's available. But there will be those unique circumstances. And, and ideally, we would always be weighing up all the good and all the bad. Because I think one of the things we te- often don't do in some, in some of this evidence is really weigh up the other bit of why we want to reduce beyond just wanting to have less treatment and to me it's about immunosuppressing people less uh, and trying to reduce the risk of serious adverse events like infectious adverse events which are likely to be a, a bit higher if we continue with you know unnecessarily high biological therapies it's not just about money it's about it's about best quality care and about minimizing the, the potential for harm absolutely right our guidelines are really based on the trials and, and so we couldn't really see that reducing the doses reduced the risk of adverse events, but we just had far too few adverse events to really know. So I think this is something that registries might have to answer over time. There's a need for a bit more evidence because when you try and look for the evidence of, of infection reduction, for example, or all-cause harm and how that changed when you reduce, there is a bit of evidence there, but it is quite hard to find. It's not necessarily the evidence that would fit into the sort of review that then goes into a guideline recommendation. I totally agree. It's important for the listeners to know that guidelines have lots of detail around the evidence to decision framework and practical considerations that are considering a lot of these other it depends factors. Yes. Uh, So we might move to the final recommendation, which might be easier or not easier to talk about, and that's the one for psoriatic arthritis. And in in this recommendation, we actually made a conditional recommendation against down titration. Uh, And so our guideline reads do not routinely reduce the dose of B or TSD MARDs in patients with psoriatic arthritis who are in low disease activity or remission. Abrupt cessation is also not recommended. And the reason we did that is because there actually aren't any trials um, or very few. I mean, there, there are a couple, but they're very low quality in terms of low sample size. Um, And we know that ULARS actually made a different recommendation. So I wondered what your thoughts were on our conditional against recommendation for psoriatic arthritis. Yeah, well, I I think this raised a really interesting point about how much It's how much evidence versus how much uh, sort of clinician view, you know, I guess what used to be called eminence feeds into these things and how the research evidence gets married along with, with people's clinical experience. Because to me, biologically, it seems reasonable to be able to alter dose either up or down in all disease areas. It just seems likely that that's that's something that's going to be possible. Now, up is a different thing, and and that's perhaps not what we're going to discuss now. But it seems likely that all diseases, there'll be some patients in whom you can reduce. You know, for that reason, that, that was the only guideline where I thought, well, actually, in my practice, I do exactly the same 
for the psoriatic arthritis patients in a much more less evidence-based way as I do for the rheumatoid patients. And I think I'll still carry on doing that because it seems likely that that's an appropriate clinical thing to do. But you're absolutely right. You know, where's the evidence that supports that? Are the diseases different? You know, am I doing something that's wrong as a result? And I think that's why we put do not routinely reduce it. I think the panel's thoughts were that this is one where you should think about it. Yeah. And they were torn between making a conditional against or a conditional for. And the reasons are actually exactly like you outlined. Why should it be any different? I guess they just erred on their side of caution. And because these are living guidelines, we'll be able to update this as new evidence uh, becomes available. One of the strengths of this position, though, is it, it absolutely highlights that there isn't enough evidence here. You know, and perhaps when you when we say, well, we'll just borrow all the information from rheumatoid arthritis, perhaps that approach in the past has been a bit lazy. And what it does is it allows people to get away with not doing the research. You know, by making that recommendation, you make it absolutely clear that there is no information to make a really informed decision. You know, and you would hope from that 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 drives the research agenda and says, come on, we, we need some trials in this area. Psoriatic arthritis is not just a poor relative of rheumatoid arthritis. I agree with that as well. Certainly in systematic reviews that have found there's no evidence that has driven trials. So I, I'm sure that the trials for this disease will come as well. Yeah. Before we go, I just wanted to mention to the audience that we do have these great patient fact sheets and the action plans and the flare action plan. And there's also been um, work done on a really nice decision aid that's available for patients. And that's currently for rheumatoid, but we are working on one for the other diseases as well. And many of the points that you've raised, Chris, I think will be sort of covered in, in those additional sources of information as well. And I really like the decision. You know, I spent some time looking through it and, and actually that gives people the sort of numbers that allow them to weigh up the decision they're making. So I, I, I thought the decision aids were really good. Thank you. <laughs> That's fantastic. So before we go, do you have any closing words or words of wisdom for us or any other thoughts about uh, about the guidelines? The only, the only thing I, I would say is, is I, I, I like the process. And in fact, it's only a, a few little sentences within within the methods of it. It's, it's around the idea that real clinicians who are seeing patients feed into the questions through the ARA. And I, and I think that's all, all you know, really interesting because, you know, both of us have been involved in the 3E process in the past and, and that involved taking large numbers of rheumatologists feeding into the questions, the process being done and then it being fed out to large numbers of rheumatologists. And that makes the process really real and, it, and embedded in clinical practice rather than just in the academic world. I'm really pleased that you've picked up on that because it was exactly with those thoughts and with the experience of 3E that that we really wanted to do this. Uh, so Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. We really value your time as well as your input into what we've done. And hopefully we can be in touch and uh, talk to you again sometime. I'd love that. Thanks very much. Thank you. This podcast is funded by the Australian Government Department of Health through the Value in Prescribing BDMARDS program grant. Developed with the guidance of members of the Targeted Therapies Alliance, for further information, please go to www.nps.org.au slash bdmards or www.rheumatology.org.au.